Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So much to talk about today. I want to begin by recalling, uh, of all things, a moment in the movie Annie Hall, where Alvy Singer, played by Woody Allen, and Annie Hall, played by Diane Keaton, are walking along, and the kind of the moment is coming in their relationship where somebody probably has to say, I love you, to the other person. And what Alvy, Woody Allen, says is that he thinks love is too weak a word. That he says, I love you. I love you. He tries saying it a whole bunch of other ways. The point being that since everybody says, I love you, he wants to say something else. And I think crisis is a little bit like that now. I mean, it's a less appetizing concept than love, but everything does feel like a crisis. We talk about crises all the time. Uh, and, you know, if, if I don't know, if there's uh, a crisis in the birth rate of Japan and a pedestrian safety crisis in America and a humanitarian crisis in five or six areas of the world, you start wondering about the word itself and whether we would know a real crisis when we saw it. And some of those are real crises, obviously. Anyway, I've got to stop babbling and begin to talk to my guests. Uh, Elia Burris is a historian of modern Europe uh, and a senior fellow uh, at the University of California, Berkeley's Center for Right-Wing Studies. Christian Paz uh, is a senior politics reporter for Vox. So uh, we are going to begin with you, uh, Elia. Um, you really did see this coming. <laughs> you wrote that article in 2020 uh, about well, if everything's a crisis, nothing's a crisis. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? I mean, these days, we've even kind of created sort of portmanteau words like polycrisis and permacrisis. And now there's something called crisis fatigue. And it almost feels like a little bit of a feedback loop. We keep telling people there's a crisis, and now they have crisis fatigue. Yeah, no, well, thanks for having me. I, I agree. I, I think uh, crisis is itself in crisis, ironically, a little bit. Um, I mean, to talk, you know, kind of start out with the, the origins of the term, it was quite a common term in ancient Greek. It kind of named stark alternatives, um, a moment of decision. So in law, it meant verdict. In a, you know, the field of battle, it meant um, you know, the decisive turning point, where we win, where we lose. Um, and then it becomes a politicized word, really, in the 18th century. It, it enters the field of, of society. And it, it comes to name the moment where it, you know, there, there's a watershed, a turning point, where it will be decided whether or not uh, society takes one course or another. And often it's cast in very existential terms. So the locus classicus of this is really uh, Thomas Paine's famous 1776 essay, uh, Common Sense, uh, published, I think, tellingly in a magazine called The American Crisis, in which uh, he's urging American colonists to stand up and fight for their liberty, uh, in which case, if they do so, they, they, will, they will have a, a nation of their own, they will live in freedom, and if they don't, they will become slaves or, or continuous slaves uh, to the British crown. 
And so that's that's really the core sense of the word is this 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 narrative, this this capacity to dramatize the present, to tell a story about a past that leads to the present, uh, the present at diagnosed as a kind of crossroads or a watershed, a turning point. And then a turning point, you know, in the present that will lead to one or or one or two possible futures, um, either either salvation or or death, um, you know, something very good or something very bad. And that's that's the core meaning. But in the 20th century, especially after World War One, that understanding of crisis, um, it begins to bleed into other domains. And so really, in the, in the course of the 20th century, you can chart this very directly um, since 1900, at least in, 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 in English language publications. Uh, instances of the word crisis have 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 escalated. Um, uh, I think increased about four hundred and fifty percent, so more than quadrupled. Yeah, and it's and it's come to just you know it 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 feeds into every everything's in crisis, right? And, and, and I think part of I, its power is its ability to dramatize the present in this way. Yeah, I think now everybody feels like they're having a crisis. We'll be talking at the end of the show with Barbara Bradley Haggerty uh, about the idea of a midlife crisis. We'll be talking in the middle part of the show uh, to uh, someone who handles PR crises. I mean, you know, Hugh Grant had a PR crisis, uh, not the kind of, same kind of crisis that the pandemic or Ukraine uh, were. Um, I did actually find a speech given by the managing director of the International Monetary Fund in 2022, where she talked about Ukraine and the pandemic and said that what we have in effect, we, she says, to put it simply, we are facing a crisis on top of a crisis. Um, I think it might be interesting to hear a little bit of what a crisis sounds like, uh, like a real crisis. And interestingly, what we're going to play is the sound of somebody sounding extraordinarily calm uh, in the middle of a crisis. This is a one cat. So uh, we then got this message this morning. So we now uh, have to wait to see how it unfolds. And there's a good deal of complexities to it. Uh, the, uh, the withdrawal of these missiles, technicians, and the cessation of uh, subversive activity by them, well, we just have to set up satisfactory procedures to determine whether these actions will be carried out. So I would think that uh, if we can do that, we'll be uh, find our interests advanced, even though it may be only one more chapter in a rather long story as far as Cuba's concerned. Of course, that's JFK in the Cuban middle, Missile Crisis. Nobody here calls it anything else. Cuban Missile leads to the word crisis. It's not the Cuban Missile Misunderstanding or the Cuban Missile Diplomacy Victory or anything else. And uh, he's talking to Eisenhower there. And I'm just, if I were president, I would have been crying about halfway through the phone call. I'd be saying, I think the world's going to blow up and it's going to be my fault. Please come back and be president. I can't do this. But he sounds so unbelievably calm. But, I mean, to your point... Uh, uh, Elia, this is that's a real crisis, particularly in the sense that it could go really, really horribly or it could go a lot better. It is that sort of fork in the road moment that that defines a real crisis. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it's one of the, I think, truly legitimate uses of crisis are these sorts of, inter, you know, crises in international affairs where, you know, war and peace are at stake. And, you know, in the Cuban Missile Crisis um, you know, nuclear holocaust, a nuclear exchange between superpowers or not. I mean, I think that's a very legitimate use of the word. But what's interesting to me about the Cuban middle, Missile Crisis is that unlike most uses of crisis today, um, it's, it's bounded in time. The chronology is very clear. It unfolded over 13 days in October 1962. Nobody thinks it began in 1957. Nobody thinks it lasted <laughs> until the 1970s. It's clearly bounded in time, whereas most of our uses of crises today 
are much fuzzier, much vaguer chronologically. So, you know, if there's a crisis at the border, a crisis in education, if there's an opioid crisis, I mean, these are, you know, I think maybe arguable uses of the word crisis, but when do they begin? You know, what was the threshold at which we entered the period, you know, the, 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 the state of crisis in these, in these fields? Um, it's much fuzzier. And, and because it's much fuzzier, I think it's much more prone to rhetorical abuse. It's much more prone to, or, uh, to mischief of various sorts. So let's bring Christian into this conversation. Uh, you know, we want young voters to be engaged. We want millennials and Zoomers to care about the electoral process. But we also keep telling them there's a crisis. Uh, and, you know, I mean, a crisis is not something that's a very inviting prospect. Could you say a little bit about how you see that in terms of promoting the engagement, particularly of younger people, with the political process, with public policy, with the news in general? Absolutely. I think it's interesting that uh, we talk about the fuzziness of crises today because um, I think it definitely speaks to one of the big distinctions between something that's time bound and something that's definitive in terms of life and death. Uh, because what we're really talking about in the fuzzier aspect is a version of an identity crisis or a version of a threat to some kind of status quo or um, the, the, the appearance of, of a status threat. Um, and that really, I feel, comes across when we're thinking about young people specifically and the kind of politics that they've been exposed to you know, over the last 20 years as they've entered and matured into political age is um, the crises that, that we talk about in politics, you know, leave the economic aside, um, tend to have to do with you know, crises of American identity, crises of, uh, you know, American government, of, of legitimacy, of uh, representation, um, and really essentially, you know, struggles over over how power should be used and that's kind of fed into a, ver a version of political speech that we have now that is definitely more has definitely been more manichaean has definitely set up elections in terms of uh this all or nothing you know i think if you were to ask a young person not necessarily a new voter but somebody who um might have voted in, in one election one presidential election or two um, you ask them, you know, how has this election or how was that election described to you? They'll probably say, oh, I was told that it was the most important election of my lifetime. Um, and how many times have we heard that? <laughs> probably pretty frequently. Um, and usually that's because the election is being described to them and politics is being described to them, not in terms of incrementalism or in terms of slow, you know, progress or in terms of actual concrete legislative achievements, but in terms of a kind of moral and identitarian face-off between a worldview that maybe you, 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 you believe in and a word worldview that's trying to take that power or, or, or fundamentally reshape the status quo. Um, and I think even going back to what I think is the prime example of a politician who, uh, you know, used the language of crises and kind of was able to, to mobilize a movement, um, you go back to 2008, Barack Obama did something in politics that was just kind of unseen at the time and becoming a kind of generational figure for millennials and eventually for Gen Z as well. Um, but the stakes being raised, obviously, high there because, you know, Iraq war, Afghanistan, uh, you know, financial crisis, there were a lot of things going on there that kind of made sense. But since then, that, that kind of usage of that 
um, of that kind of uh, total, you know, totalizing language has kind of stuck around in politics, definitely through Trump um, and to today. Yeah. Um, so then, you, let's, yeah. Go, let's go back to Obama for a second, because I think that's a really good point that, um, you know, one of the sort of slangy terms for him was eventually no drama Obama. And and I think if you think about that 08 election, it was in the middle of the economic crisis, as you said. And, and there really was kind of a moment where you could tell it might have been Lehman Brothers. I can't remember. One of the big collapses happened, and there was a question about whether McCain and Obama were still going to have a debate. Uh, and you just suddenly realized that Obama seemed pretty calm about this whole thing. Like he probably he thought he could probably figure out how to get through this. And McCain seemed a little bit more confused. And and to me, it was one of the moments in that election cycle where you thought, because people were really scared. I mean, they really thought they were headed for, to another another Great Depression instead of a Great Recession. And and you you needed the feeling that it wasn't a crisis uh, in order to feel good at all. Uh, and I'm thinking, Christian, that may have been one of Obama's gifts. Uh, definitely. And I think it's something that many tried to replicate since then and couldn't or they went the the trump route essentially which is to exploit it even more um and to try to try to you know i just think back to the the american carnage speech that donald trump gave at his inauguration um but it does feed into i think a bit of what we have had since when you ask about young people specifically um which is they're obviously becoming a bigger part of the electorate but at the same time, I think you look historically, Gallup has some research on this about how news attention, which tends to spike in what we might think of as moments of crises, has dropped significantly across the electorate, but especially among younger people. Um, you know, that 18 to 29 demographic that over the last 20 years, maybe I think Gallup cites about 16% of them as the average who would say that they closely followed political news um, has now, you know, in 2023, dropped to 9%. So, a pretty significant drop off, which maybe speaks to a bit of fatigue with all this talk of crises and us versus them. Yeah, no, it's, you know, documentable. A Pew Research Center survey last year found that 65 percent of Americans said they always or often felt exhausted when they thought about politics. But, you know, Elias, back to what we were saying before. And Elias, I think this really kind of um, I want to build on what Christian said about Obama, because the, there's an opposite mode that you write about in your essay. And, and it's Trump. It's Putin. It's Orban. And, and you know, Obama is sort of saying, yeah, there's a crisis. This kind of sucks, but I got this. You know, we'll figure this out. Uh, and then you've got these other kinds of leaders who say there's a crisis. And then to, in, to in Trump's words, and I alone can save you. This is something that you wrote about that the author, author, the authoritarian style is to say exactly that. There's a crisis and I alone can save you. Yeah, that's part of my suspicion about the word crisis and its overuse. I, I think ultimately the, the the politics of this word may bend more favorably to the to the authoritarian right um, than in any other direction, and and the contrast with Obama is is stark. I mean, Obama Obama famously said there there's no blue America, there's no red America, there's a United States of America. Whereas um, Trump and and um, you know others of a I, I think more illiberal uh, bent around the world, you mentioned Orban, you mentioned Putin, um, tend to cast crisis as a a, a, a deep dire threat to national identity and a, and a threat crucially that's been created on the left. Um, the kind of stories they tell me, it's, it's almost a common theme um, um, connecting these, these various illiberal actors today around the world. is It's a common kind of deep story 
of their nation's um, victimhood at the hands of a you know liberal elites, Western elites, progressive elites. Um, you know the 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 terms are are many. You know wokeism, political correctness, things like this. But it's it's a common deep story I think that connects them all. Yeah, and Christian, as we look at this cycle, um, you probably saw the same New York Times article that I did. I think it was by Katie Gluck saying that people who were opposed to Trump were starting to feel, and this is a direct quote from one of them, crisis out. Uh, and, And one sort of wonders about that. You've already kind of alluded to it, Christian, but in this cycle, crisis talk might really just dampen enthusiasm in general. And it seems as though maybe we're even hearing a little bit less crisis talk from Trump himself and certainly not hearing it from Biden about anything except the possibility of Trump getting elected. But yeah, what are your thoughts there? That's absolutely true, that contrast. I mean, in general, an incumbent doesn't necessarily want to acknowledge that there is a crisis going on um, because that would mean that they are not right. They're, 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 scoring an own goal there. Um, but it, it is interesting in the sense of how Trump has managed to, honestly, in a very, you know, th- this may be hard to believe, but he hasn't been the totalizing force that he was in 2020 or 2016, the, the kind of the, the central figure in your in, in national discourse and in media coverage. His, his uh, indictments, uh, his court appearances, uh, you know, the decisions that have come down from some of those civil trials, um, they have been big news, but they've tended to be kind of washed out by other things that are going on in, in politics and and uh, and not been kind of the, what, maybe what we were used to 24-hour coverage of him in, in, in ahead of the 2016 election, maybe. Um, and part of, part of that is a factor that he and his campaign have chosen to remain in pretty conservative echo chambers, whether that's giving speeches at CPAC or in red states or um, at specific Republican events, um, or kind of not really giving, you know, giving using the same even kind of rhetoric that he used to use before. It's kind of evolved a little bit, and a lot of that has kind of been the absence of him from social media, from Twitter specifically, um, and on Truth Social. Uh, but it's interesting to talk about the, that kind of crisis, burnout, Trump fatigue, um, because it is also kind of the 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 the, the product of uh, of a Democratic Party that for a long time. Um, has seen itself as only really able to score, you know, kind of offensive, make offensive ground when there is a crisis. If you think about Dobbs and and the overturn of Roe v. Wade, that was uh, that was definitely described in the language of crisis, um, and and you know, a cousin of it being the term unprecedented. Um, and it, we, it was obviously a significant, you know, pretty significant historic moment. Um, and that was what gave Democrats the energy to push through the 2022 midterms. And, and, and it's kind of fed a bit of the president's reelection plan. I think I remember writing about his state of the union last year. Uh, and the kind of the, the big kind of takeaway from that state of the union was that Biden was President Biden was offering an alternative to just an anti-Trump campaign. He was kind of offering a, an optimistic message, a hopeful message of, uh, you know, recovering from the pandemic of economic growth of slowing inflation bit by bit of and then laid out kind of a, a issue-based agenda for things that he wanted to you know attention and to focus on um and since then i guess the combination of the economy's you know slow stabilization still not turning into you know positive uh approval ratings and also uh you know gaza and israel palestine becoming an issue again if ukraine 
dragging on um, and Trump, you know, getting indicted and all these other uh, specific Trump legal situations have kind of drawn that campaign back into anti-Trump mode instead of, a you know, that positive uplifting message that they might have given, uh, had a chance to do. And that, I think, is just completely inseparable from this Trump and crisis fatigue, which is uh, people, it seems, in a lot of the polling that I've looked at are kind of tired of thinking about men, about these two men, They're tired <laughs> of thinking about, uh, you know, movements and maybe want to think about specific issues and priorities that they might have. Yeah, I, I think we should not completely exonerate ourselves here in the press. Uh, in fact, one thing that I've noticed, I've done it myself, actually, but uh, uh, a tendency, because crisis is no longer uh, as good a word as it used to be, we now refer to this, this election as existential in nature. Um, of course, we know what follows existential. The crisis is probably the word that follows the word ex existential <laughs> most often. But, you know, it's just not good enough for it to be a crisis. It has to be uh, existential. So, Elia, uh, um you end your piece. I mean, it's running through your piece, but you end your piece talking about the Weimar Republic and the idea that fear and desperation, rather than the actual material conditions on the ground, the fear and the desperation seem to drive Weimar towards its end, towards its uh, uh, turn towards authoritarianism. Maybe you can say a little bit about, about how you see that. And, and whether, you know, as you hear Christian talk about just the fatigue of people uh, dealing with a, a pervasive sense of, of never-ending crisis, whether that's similar or, or significantly different. Well, maybe to, to start with the latter point, um, the feeling of paralysis or, you know, crisis fatigue, I, that itself is not particularly new, I don't think. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of Jimmy Carter's famous uh, crisis of confidence speech yeah. in July 1979, which is another kind of crisis of crisis <laughs> uh, diagnosis in the sense that what he's talking about is a loss of optimism, a loss of belief in our capacity to master the world around us and to 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 build a better future. Um, I mean, what he's talking about is we, we now face crisis uh, without believing that we can that we can handle it, that we can manage it. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of, you know, yeah, there, there, there's, there's a kind of um, paralysis in that. But I, I think still fundamentally today, it's not about, you know, people who talk about crisis, they, they want action. It's a call to mobilization. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the famous Malaise speech yeah. in which he never says Malaise. It's actually a better speech than yeah. I remember. I, I went back to it recently. It's not that bad at all. Well, listen, we have to yeah. go to a break right here. Uh, mm -hmm. You guys have been just terrific, uh, and you've really set the table for the rest of our conversation. Elia Burris, historian of modern Europe and a senior fellow at the University of California's Berkeley's Center for Right-Wing Studies. Uh, Christian Paz is a senior politics reporter for Vox. We're going to come back and talk to the person who you going to call when you're having a very public crisis. Molly McPherson. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife For a considerable time with his knowing consent I had frequent meetings with her See, this is the kind of thing that, you know, Molly McPherson gets called in to deal with Although the first thing she would say to Alexander Hamilton is You wrote it down and published it? I might not be able to help you Molly McPherson is an expert in crisis communications and emergency management She's the author of the book, Indestructible Reclaim, Control, and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis I've also been listening to her uh, very entertaining and interesting podcast uh, today Uh, She's also a superstar on TikTok Um, And so she's here with us. Hi, Molly McPherson. Hello, Colin. So, yes, the word crisis. I mean, you know, in the first segment of the show today, we talked about a crisis like the Cuban Missile Crisis, where if you get things wrong, a lot of things blow up and people die. And it's a very, very serious problem for the entire world. There are other kinds of crises. I mean, and and some of them are reputational in nature, and they're really more of a crisis for the person and people close to the person. And and that's often where you come in. Um, And maybe just say about how, how you think of the word crisis in that situation. Well, I think of the word crisis, you know, straight from theory and from the textbook, you know, it can be defined as a significant threat, um, either to your operations or a reputation. So if you do not handle it properly, there will be negative effects. So, you know, I think I want to go over some of the mistakes I think people make. uh, The first one being not calling Molly McPherson, of course, but um, but I, I also wonder if if Hugh Grant made people think that this was easier than it really is. If you recall in 1995, uh, he gets caught uh, involved with a sex worker. I think it was in, in L.A. Uh, and it's a huge thing. And it's, you know, his career is really kind of getting started there. And, and this was back when maybe we were a little less accustomed to a constant flood of scandals than we are right now. But it really was a PR crisis. And one of the things I guess that he and his PR team decided to do was just go on late night talk shows and talk and talk and talk and use that aw shucks Hugh Grant charm. And he really got out of this without much of a scratch or dent. And I wonder, Molly, if other people who've been in crises since then have thought, well, he did it. Why couldn't I do it? Well, the problem is that not enough people remember the Hugh Grant incident. And even though that was back in the 90s, that was a brilliant response to a celebrity scandal. And the fact that so many people do the complete opposite as a Hugh Grant, I mean, he played the character of Hugh Grant, you know, that kind of foppish, you know, cute, you know, sweet guy who in real life isn't really like that. But he was a caricature that absolutely worked. But people do not follow that playbook anymore. 
Another thing that people do is that they think they can get through it alone or they have people like you, but they don't listen to those people. Uh, I'm going to play a little example of that, which you are very, very familiar with. I promise we will not play the entire 10 minutes of this, but we'll just play uh, a few seconds of this. This is B1 Cat. since I saw my face. I haven't been doing so great, so I took a little break. So a lot of people are saying some things about me that aren't quite true. Doesn't matter if it's true, though. Just as long as it's entertaining to you. Right? You guys having fun? All aboard the toxic gossip train. Oh, I think that's quite enough. Although, although pretty somewhere in that, Molly, this is Colleen Ballinger. Uh, you can maybe explain better than I can who she is and what kind of trouble she was in. But um, interestingly, I think at one point in that that ten minute YouTube musical thing, she said that they told me not to talk about this, but they didn't tell me I couldn't sing, and so that's why she's doing it. And you're just thinking, yeah, no, they meant that too. This is not a good idea. <laughs> Yes. I call that the too cute by half crisis response. She truly thought that she was going to, you know, be more clever than the general public. Now, one might argue that that was straight out of that Hugh Grant playbook. I mean, she's playing a character and she thought that character would come out on top by being clever and witty and to sing it through. But that was uh, received as a complete uh, flop of a response. Yeah, and Molly, we should also say that one other way that we're in a different era from 1995 in Hugh Grant is when you do something like that, people start making their own TikToks and YouTube videos about what you just did. They don't even get through all 10 minutes of it before they just start pouring out responses. You don't have to wait for Inside Edition or an appearance on The Jay Leno Show. It just happens. Yeah, absolutely. And the difference, too, with Hugh Grant is let's say that Hugh Grant story happened uh, now. It wouldn't we wouldn't just find out about it on, you know, Inside Edition and then he'd go on Jay Leno. He'd go on The Tonight Show. There would probably be, you know, 500 people in Los Angeles who were there on the street with Hugh Grant. They were filming him. They're interviewing, you know, and they're all coming up with their own theories. I mean, they probably would have destroyed his reputation before he even got to the chair, you know, with, with uh, Jay to talk about it. But the Colleen Balance you know, is another example of when someone is, you know, trying to, you know, outwit, you know, or out strategize, you know, the general public, that's where they tend to go south. Because unlike a time when, uh, you know, when handlers and lawyers could control the media and control editors a little bit more, no one can control the public, no one can control public opinion. So you really have to tread lightly in these crisis responses. Yeah. And also, yeah, when somebody's dealing with you, I mean, I think particularly in this era where we have people who are TikTok celebrities and Instagram influencers and, and viral YouTube personalities, Colleen Ballinger, who, by the way, I think was sort of in trouble with kind of, you know, things involving underage people. Yes, um, yes. At that it time. got dark. That's what that song was about. But these are people who... I mean, how they got famous was just to try to be as interesting as they possibly could be and try to be as attention getting as they possibly could be. And then I assume sometimes, Molly, you're talking to these people saying, no, you need to become really boring for a while. You don't want to be an interesting person. And that goes so much against their grain, right? 
Oh, absolutely, Colin. I mean, these are people who are so accustomed to feeding off of their audiences. So when you get younger people, younger generations who are in the middle of a crisis, and I deal with them a lot now, you know, I work with influencers, you know, people who lose all their brand deals because they said something or did something wrong that, and the public decided that they were going to just inflict all this backlash on their brain. I mean, they panic and they don't know what to do with it. But people forget that if you just use truth if you just you know use common sense and you and you give the public what they want which is an acknowledgement of what you did wrong and then they'll quickly move on but if you fight it they are going to continue to fight you until you get to the point where you have to say something or your career is completely over yeah now that i'm a full-blown mcphersonite i know that what you have to do is you have to own it (laughs) and then you have to explain it and then you have to promise that you have a strategy for making sure it does not happen again. That's uh, it. That's the full-blown playbook. You yeah, got it right there. I don't have to pay you anymore. I can just do this every time I get in trouble. <laughs> yes. So, But, you know, another point that you've made, which I think is also a really good one, is that there's a normal human instinct to fight back, particularly if you feel like, you know, that yeah, maybe you have done something wrong, but the way that it's being described strikes you as grotesquely unfair. And so a lot of people want to fight back. And I assume that's something that you also often are trying to talk them out of doing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, my duty to the profession means it's a duty to my client. And I want my client to be able to get through this crisis. And I tell them, if you start by explaining what happened, which is what most people want to do, that is the natural human reaction. You know, when someone inflicts pain, you want to, you know, you you need to explain it. You're bracing yourself out there. But the problem when you start explaining, eventually people just naturally fall into blaming other people. They naturally want to explain themselves out of it. And it gets worse and it becomes this cycle of doom almost. I tell them, just stop what you're doing first and just take accountability. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to apologize. It doesn't mean you have to say you're sorry. Sometimes you're just adjacent to the crisis. Sometimes people just want an explanation of what happened. So simply addressing what happened can help in many cases. Absolutely. Um, I think I heard you make a point that I thought was a terrific point, and that was about the difference between a legal fixer and a PR fixer. So a legal fixer is Michael Clayton, George Clooney. This is the guy who comes in and tries to get you out of the trouble that you're in. What he's really worried about is your judicial exposure here, the fact that the idea that you could be uh, indicted, you could be convicted, and so he he or she will do whatever is necessary to get you out of that. And, And that, you used the example of Jonathan Majors, and I thought it was a good one. That's maybe the the opposite of what you want the same client to do in terms of public relations. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan Majors, Lizzo, those are two people following the same playbook where they are listening to lawyers over a crisis manager, if you will, or a handler. Lawyers act as crisis managers in these situations, but they're putting legal liability first. Now, that could win the day for them. I mean, they could get out of whatever court snafu they have. However, it comes with a great risk to your reputation. And when the when the public, the general public and more damaging when the social media public determines that you are hypocritical or that you are denying something that you shouldn't be denying, you're going to have a liability anyway, and that's to your reputation and ultimately your career. Yeah, so you don't, I mean, it it is like blaming the victim might be an effective strategy in certain kinds of legal jeopardies, but blaming Mm -hmm. the victim in a situation where you're your reputational jeopardy is what's on the line is usually a a pretty bad strategy, um, which is why I guess you need a team, actually. Um, So, yeah, I I think the other thing to say about this, and this is 
So I've been a journalist for 47 years. Um, and so I've had an opportunity to watch a lot of this. And one of the things that I always think is that from our point of view, from the journalist point of view, what we love is when somebody who's in trouble doesn't make a clean breast of things in the first place. They don't own it and explain it. Um, and so then there's that drip, drip, drip. You know, there's, and so that means it's sort of full employment for us, right? We're wondering, how long can we ride this story? Well, sometimes they make it easy for us. They just break the story into little pieces and keep feeding them to us. Oh, absolutely. And I'm, I mean, I'm fortunate because my plus one in my life is a journalist. So I always get to see those sides of the stories. And so when, when he's telling me about situations where I'm watching, you know, a newscast, when I see someone right away come out and admit it, and and it just kind of own that conversation you can almost see like how he wilts you know when he sees that because <laughs> journalists don't want that it's the end of the story you know it's you know it's it's done and over with but me in crisis management that's the trick i mean most people are so afraid to do that but i tell them hey you guys this is the secret if you say this like not only will the public give you a break the journalist is going to have nowhere to go there's no other part of the story and yeah they may finish it and it might be you know a story comes out of it but it's not a great story story. So that's what my goal is when I'm working with clients. I'm sorry, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I get it. But I mean, we've all, you know, occasionally we watch that clip of Bill Clinton going, I did not have sexual relationships with that woman. And you're just thinking, do people never learn? They never learn. But you know what, though, with President Clinton, yeah. um, how in a million years did he ever think that a blue dress would exist? That's why what he was doing, he was he was playing the odds, because <laughs> if there wasn't a dress, he would have gotten away with it because he was so charismatic. You know, he had a base. He had people who supported him, supported him. But it was him against Monica Lewinsky. But in the end, it was him against a dress and he could not beat the dress. Yeah. And just real quick, because we're running out of time here. But um uh, though I could talk to you a lot longer. I wonder if you think that, that Trump has kind of rearranged the DNA of this whole thing uh, in, in the sense that, I mean, the Access Hollywood tape, I'm sure your plus one says this too, mm -hmm. that should have been the end of the campaign. In conventional you know, timelines, the conventional narrative of American political life, that's the end of your political campaign. Mike Pence mm -hmm. is running for president. And somehow it wasn't. And I wonder whether our understanding of the word crisis, and particularly public relation or reputational crisis, changed as a result of that. Or is he just so sui generis, such a one-off that it doesn't really affect anything else? Well, great question. And what I'm noticing in my work is specifically in the past year is we're dealing with polarization now. Um, when you have polarization, when you have a base, you can start making those types of risks and saying those things. And we and president and former President Trump knows this. I mean, we look at what happened with Bud Light. You know, here was an absolutely huge op operational crisis that happened there. But they chose to abandon segments of consumerism, which is really normally that would be a death now to a brand, but they doubled down on it and they got through that because there is so much polarization. So absolutely, that that shakes up the playbook uh, a lot nowadays. All right. Well, Molly McPherson, uh, you are a joy to talk to. You're also certainly uh, on my speed dial now for the minute. Uh, the whole thing about me, <laughs> me and the lemurs comes out. Uh, but so Molly McPherson is an expert in crisis communications, uh, the author of the book, Indestructible, Reclaim Control and Respond with Confidence in a Media Crisis. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the midlife crisis, which sometimes precipitates Molly's kinds of crises. You've got to spread joy up to the maximum bring gloom. Down to the minimum, have faith, or pandemonium's liable to walk upon the scene. 
Make sure you never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. And we are indeed back. Time to thank Kat Pastor, our technical producer. That was her voice there doing the credits, too. And the aforementioned Lily Tyson, the senior producer of our show, is the producer of this particular episode. Also, thanks to Existential Bob, a stuffed toy who I've placed on her desk a long time ago. Uh, Existential Crisis Bob is his name, actually. Uh, and uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants, who's running around gra- grabbing some of the clips that we've used today as well. I think that's everybody. Uh, now, this is so exciting. This is like a celebrity for me. I mean, I'm a public radio guy. For years, I listened to Barbara. Bradley Haggerty, talking about religion, uh, now a contributing writer to The Atlantic and the author of Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, welcome to our show. It's great to be here. Thanks, Colin. So we can talk a little bit about the history of this idea of the midlife crisis. I wanted to just say that one thing that I discovered today in my research is that the German term is Torchlusspanik, uh, literally shut door panic, fear of being on the wrong side of the closing gate. Uh, but this is an idea that sat around for a while, and then a guy at Yale named Daniel Levinson sort of breathed quite a bit of life into it. You can say a little bit about that. Sure, sure. It actually preceded Daniel Levinson. It was... um. The idea of midlife crisis came uh, from a guy named, a psychoanalyst in Canada named Elliot Jacques, and he wrote this really um, obscure uh, journal article in 1965, which was called Death and the Midlife Crisis. So here's what he did. He analyzed his own patients, all men, by the way, and he concluded concluded that when a man begins to kind of glimpse the shadows of death, maybe in the 40s, he suddenly realizes that he will long be gone before he can realize his dreams. And so he does, he has a midlife crisis. And then Daniel Levinson at Yale came along and picked up the theme after interviewing 40 men. And then the person who really put it on the map was Gail Sheehy, who wrote the book Passages, if you recall that. And suddenly the midlife crisis became, you know, a a cultural phenomenon. Everyone felt that they had to have a midlife crisis. But Colin, what happened is about 30 years ago, researchers tried to find evidence of a midlife crisis. They're like, yeah, let's just interview a whole bunch of people and kind of understand this crisis a little bit better. And what they found is that basically only 10% of people suffer this kind of crisis, this existential crisis, right? What most people refer to as a midlife crisis is really a crisis or a setback that happens in midlife, like losing a spouse or a parent or a job, you know, having a health scare. Most people recover from those setbacks, um, but they don't have a midlife crisis. They have kind of a midlife ennui. Right. So meanwhile, the culture is telling us otherwise. Uh, Gail Sheehy, as you say, in particular, is telling us otherwise. And Passages was a huge best-selling book. But we also started to see right. movies movies like American Beauty. Uh, right. We hear a little bit of Kevin Spacey, uh, who has suddenly taken up jogging, and he inserts himself into a pair of regular joggers, C1 cap. Hey, guys. Lester, I didn't know you ran. Well, I just started. Good for you. I figured you guys might be able to give me some pointers. I I need to shape up fast. Are you looking to just lose weight or do you 
want to have increased strength and flexibility as well. I want to look good naked. I mean, you know, obviously, <laughs> we don't even need to say. I mean, of course, Kevin Spacey, that's kind of taken on a whole new set of meanings, but we won't go there. But, yeah, I mean, I, th I remember turning 40, and I remember thinking that if there were things that I was going to regret not doing towards the end of my life, I should maybe start doing them now. And that can either be a very healthy, you know, almost evolutionarily determined moment of, yeah, let's think about that. Let's take a little inventory. You know, are there ways in which I'm not completely satisfying my, my goals for myself? Or it could be a, a big freaking mess. But I guess what you're saying is the research says it's not usually a big freaking mess. It's not. It's not a big freaking mess. But what does happen, let me just mention something, because what people feel is actually a very real phenomenon. Um, it's called the U-curve of happiness. So researchers have interviewed people across the world, around the world, 70 different countries. And what they have found is that there is what they call the U-curve of happiness. And um, here's what here's what happens. In your 20s, you're young, you're filled with dreams. Oh, I could start a launch, I could launch a startup, I can win an Oscar, you know, I can find the cure for cancer. Then the 30s, you know, you're married, maybe little kids, reality is beginning to sink in, like you're not going to be able to do all that stuff. And then in your 40s and 50s, you may have children or aging parents, heavy responsibilities at work, a mortgage, college tuition, and you know that you're not going to be able to accomplish those super heady dreams of your youth. So what happens is people kind of fall into a funk. And the low point for people in the United States is 45. It's 40 for women and 50 for men. And so this is a real, real phenomenon. But here's what happens. Eventually, and this is universal around the world, except for Russia, actually, um, around the world, you almost inevitably become cheerier in your 50s and 60s and 70s. And, and you know, so a man on a walker in his you know late 70s is happier than a man like Kevin Spacey at 45, right, trying to look good naked. Um, and one theory about this is that people begin to reconcile themselves to the fact that they're not going to be a CEO or a Supreme Court justice, and they begin to appreciate their lives and the people in, in their lives. And But also brain studies show that your brain simply becomes happy, happier after 50. It, it basically begins to look at the glass half full instead of half empty. And so, so what happens is there's this nadir, yes, in your 40s. But it's also a time of rich meaning. It, a lot of relationships, you're at the top of your game, uh, you, you know, career-wise and all of that stuff. So it's a meaningful time. It's just a really hard time. I have to say that people tend to get happier, except in Russia, is probably the funniest thing anybody said <laughs> on my show in weeks. Uh, well, and... well can, I, can I tell you what happened? They looked at, they looked at Russians, and what they found was that Russians get happier when they're 18, and then after that, it's all downhill. All downhill. <laughs> so this is something for which we probably don't have the kind of hard-edged research that you prefer, but I think we can talk about it heuristically. I do think that the, the climate, the environment has changed quite a bit, and you start hearing acronyms like YOLO, you only live once, and FOMO, fear mm -hmm. of missing out, and you realize that there's an entire huge multi-generational cohort of our species that have grown up in a somewhat different environment where they're constantly being 
invited to compare themselves to other people's. Other people are are showboating happiness on various social media platforms. Look what I'm doing. Look at my beautiful life. The implication inevitably being, which is not what your life is like. And I wonder, you know, if this conversation were taking place 25 years from now, we might be talking about a different thing. People don't have a lot of chances just to sit with their lives and not have it have it be compared to a bunch of other shiny, beautiful lives. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think we're in a really different time. I mean, you hear about the the quarter life crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where people twenty five having having you know an existential crisis or something, and and that didn't happen when you and I, I'm about your your age, I think that didn't happen when when we were twenty five. And I think part of it is kind of looking at the outside world and seeing everyone putting on a terrific show and realizing that. You know their outsides are not like your insides, but but I also think that there's there's something external going on too, which is that um, this cohort, this younger group, is it's putting it's putting off things um, such that there's a little bit more uncertainty in their lives. There's more existential angst. You know they're putting off marriage, so they're not starting. They're not getting families. They're not kind of forming that unit. They feel more alone. The economy, you know, the gig economy. There's been uncertainty in the economy, and so I think I think this kind of uncertainty is also feeding into this angst that people have, along with just thinking that they don't measure up to everyone else because you know, look at look at that page, look at you know what a star they are, and uh, so I think that is going on as well. So we've got about forty-five seconds left, as a public radio person, you really know what that means to say 45 seconds. Uh, yes. There are um, two wonder drugs that people can take. One of them is called friendship. The other one's called purpose in life. Can you just kind of right. quickly, quickly give us that? Sure. Friendship, everyone understands. The thing about friendship is that it's different from family in that when you, um, when a friend stresses you out, you can distance yourself. Whereas when a family member stresses you out or an in-law, you can't. And so friendships are really important. The other thing is having a reason to get up in the morning every day, whether it's a little purpose like, you know, learning Spanish or for me, competitive cycling, that's, that really helps you kind of wake up and feel enlivened and having also a bigger purpose, which is to think about how can I use my talents, my experience, everything, my passions to bring meaning into my life and to do something that is not just about my own furtherment, you know, my to, to get richer or to get more famous or whatever. So those things, having a purpose, an internal purpose, that is super, super important. Yes, I had a knee replacement and now I'm very involved in competitive limping uh, and it's, it's very rewarding. Uh, Barbara Bradley Haggerty uh, is a contributing writer to The Atlantic, author of Life Reimagined, The Science, Art and Opportunity of Midlife. We gotta go. Thanks to everybody. And it's all just waiting for you, you're alive. So come on and show it. There's such a lot of living, such a lot of living.